Hello, I'm one of your hosts, Natalia Pinzon-Jimenez, and welcome to Farmers Build Fire Resilience, a special podcast series brought to you by the Farmer Campus, the Community Alliance with Family Farms, and the Farmers Guild. In this series, you'll travel with us to the fields and back in order to hear stories from farmers, ranchers, and community members impacted by increasingly devastating wildfires in the Western United States. We hope these stories of loss, rebuilding, and resilience will help us face a future with fire together. Today on episode three, we hear from grain farmer, David Keisel, about his experience of the 2019 sand fire in the Cape Valley of California. So my name is David Keisel, uh, running Cape Mills for going on five years now, I guess. I'm here in Cape Valley. I live in Rumsey. My mill itself is actually down 20 miles down the road in Esparto. Did my career and was a product designer and worked in global development and public health and so traveled quite a bit and had a serious health issue nine years ago now. I was diagnosed with cancer and went through all of that and sort of miraculously survived that, which I wasn't supposed to. And I said, if I ever want to do something in my life, now's the time to do it. You know, there's no excuse not to. And I had farmed when I was in my 20s in England, actually, for a couple of years. I, I, I didn't, I worked, lived on a farm and loved it. But I've always loved it. I like being on the land. I like growing food. I've I've cooked since I was a little kid. I've worked in restaurants and just enjoy being around and, and love food in general. And anyway, after this illness, I thought, you know, that would be a nice thing. I don't want to be, I don't want to spend the rest of my days sitting at a desk or in a house. And I was always very active and out, spent a lot of time outdoors. And thought, okay, farming sounds like a really good thing to be doing. I did a crash course at the Center for Land-Based Learning, a program called the California Farm Academy, which was wonderful. And through that, met some of the farmers out here, uh, Full Belly Farm, Paul Muller, and his partners at Full Belly Farm down the road, and River Dog Farm, Tim Muller, Mueller, and some of these other farmers. And it was such a, such a wonderful community and interesting place that I wanted to come out here and decided to focus on grains. Actually, I was just interested in the historical aspect of wheat and cereal grains and baking. And I just thought it was a really underrepresented component of our food system, especially in the organic movement and sustainability movement, and realized that there was no longer the infrastructure we used to have to be able to grow grains at a small scale. And we used to, every little community used to have its own flour mill. And flour was something that was milled fresh and it was, it was grown locally and it was delicious and nutritious and healthy. And it was the most direct way to connect farmers with their local communities. As mills got bought up by larger organizations and consolidated and centralized, we lost that link, a very, very direct and tangible link between the farmers and their local communities. And, you know, there's, there's basically, it doesn't exist anymore. And it wasn't that long ago that we had that. It seemed like something that was in, within the realm of being able to re- recuperate, recover somehow. So that's what I focused on. And I grow grains at small, just 
really trying to reintroduce it into rotations as it used to be with small farms and diversified farms and grow grains in rotation with vegetables and even even orchard crops. And so that's what I've been working on and what brought me up here because of these small farms, small diversified farms here. In the five years, we've had a couple of fires up here, and this is quite a fire-prone area. It's dry, it's hot, it's uh, you know on the western edge of the Sacramento Valley. And as you see, Cape Valley is this long, narrow valley, and it's all these the, the hills on both sides are primarily grazing and pasture. It had a lot of cattle on there, and a lot of questions about whether how the grazing is contributed or degraded the ecosystem and, and specifically around fires and, and you know, what is the mix of grasses and trees and you know, how has the natural cycles been just perhaps disrupted to, to make this such a fire-prone area. And it seems I think this is now the third year that I've been here that there's been a major fire somewhere in the, in the neighborhood. So last year, the California fire season started out with, I think they called it the Valley Fire, which was based in Gwenda, just, just five miles down the road, or it started outside of Gwenda. That ended up being quite a large fire. Luckily, it, it didn't affect any residences or structures, but it took out some outbuildings and anything up in the hills. A lot of, a lot of structures up in the hills were, were affected. And that came within about a half mile here of Rumsey, went south and turned around and came back up. And I remember last year getting the lecture from the fire crews in the yard of the house. I was renting another house down the road um, that I needed to stay there and get a hose and you know clear all the clear all the burnable material from around the house because within the next hour or two they figured the fire was going to be there. And there really wasn't much to do. And that was kind of terrifying, actually. I did what I could. And luckily, they managed to stop it that evening, just down down from, from the town. So it never actually came up this far. But it was a bit of a warning. And this year, the same with all of our rain. And we've been watching this incredible bloom of weeds and grasses and everything around here and just realizing what a you know, how much fuel was on the ground. And luckily, this house actually was one of the access points for the fire last year. You can see that they cut fire trails up up the ridges here. And so there actually was a, is, is a road right around the property that they'd bulldozed to um, get in and control the fire, the Valley Fire, last year. So that was already in place. I do markets on weekends in San, in San Francisco and Oakland. And I was at Ferry Plaza, my, my Saturday market, when my assistant who works at the mill in Esparto called to say she'd heard that there was a fire in Gwenda. And I kind of thought, well, Gwenda burned last year. That's, that's Gwenda. It's five miles away. It's no big deal. And I didn't really give it too much thought. And But then I was on my way back, driving back in the afternoon from Ferry Plaza, and I'm Traffic for some reason was terrible getting out of San Francisco. So I'm parked in Vallejo on I 80, and my landlord calls, and he's sounding more than a little frantic. And he said, I think that your house is gone. And I said, What? And he said, You know, he'd been out here with a hose for the last hour trying to water, you know, water down the house until the highway patrol kicked him out, told him he had to 
he had to go because the fire was right here and it was a red flag warning and it had been blowing even the wind in San Francisco was terrible and it just had that ominous feel of the day this wind was so so strong and I knew it was hot out here but really didn't think that we'd be you know getting yet another fire but sure enough um, turns out it came through it started up we can go take a look, but started over, um, this was called the Arbuckle Grade. There was a road, a dirt road that used to go from just over here over to Arbuckle, which is in the valley. And um, that had historically been one of the main access routes here. Um, and something we'd actually, as a community, had talked about after last year's fire, because if Highway 16, which goes north of here, if that gets blocked, which it does frequently by anything from landslides to fires to anything else, if that gets blocked, we and it's blocked to the south, we have no way to get out of here, the residents in the area. This fire somehow started over there. I don't think they still know what started it. And it blew over the hill and came down this way. And they couldn't get fire crews in. Um, one of my neighbors was saying they saw it and called 911 to report it on Saturday. And 911 said, um, yes, we know we're on it. We've got crews working on it. Don't worry about it. It'll be, you know, we'll take care of it. And they said it was two hours before they saw any equipment at all coming in this direction. The assumption was that equipment would be coming from over in the valley from Williams or Arbuckle. And for whatever reason, that never happened. And the crew, when the crews finally did come on this end, they couldn't get to it because the road it's impassable. Um, so they basically had to sort of watch it burn from here until it came down into the residential area. By that point, everybody knew what was going on. People were evacuating and getting out of here. I did finally get back and there's just one fire crew left here in the yard and they were hosing a few things down. The house was still standing and miraculously had my van and truck were here and they were fine. And and it actually looked like everything was, was okay until I walked around and I saw that shed had burned and inside the shed I knew it was um, my forklift and then behind the shed was my tractor and until I walked around and saw that my tractor was just this sort of smoking pile and they were fire crew was sp spraying that down. So yeah, it kind of came through the yard and just, we'll go look, it just kind of did a circle around the house. And I don't know if that's thanks to Cal Fire crews spraying it down or what. Um, Chat, my landlord said that when he left, there was a helicopter over the house. And I don't know if they, they were dumping water or what. Again, last night, neighbors were saying there was supposed to be an order to let the outbuildings burn and just save the houses because you know, PG&E had cut the power so there wasn't any water. You know, none of our wells or pumps would work. So whatever water had to come in on the, the fire department trucks or the, the Cal Fire trucks. And so they had to conserve that. And think, I mean, it made sense that they were gonna protect the houses, but whatever happened, they, this place was saved, which was great. I drove back prepared to have lost everything. As it is, I just lost kind of most important tools for farming. So I still, as I said, I plant a couple of leased fields around here in town. And then I, I work with Tim at River Dog Farm to grow grain further down the valley. The next field over was some heirloom wheat, um, Sonora, and that 
that burned a bit and then the trucks kind of drove over what was left so that was that was that's pretty well trampled and then i have a um part of the field surrounding the fire station was planted and i thought i'd lost all of that my timing i think was poor on planting because i planted and it just started raining nonstop for three months so I wasn't expecting to harvest much of anything there, but lo and behold, with the miracle of wheat, it it survived and had grown. And I was thankful that <laughs> that was one field that I planted and the next to it, I hadn't managed to plant because it was so wet. And so it was full of weeds and star thistle and everything. And it was just getting so bad that I finally went in there last week or the week before the fire and uh, mowed it. Um, because it was just getting embarrassing. And you know, little did I know that four days later, it was going to be the main staging site for the fire crews. So they were landing helicopters in there and had all the trucks. And you know, at least they had a nice place to park their fire trucks. So try to plant cover crops and um, growing heirloom varieties, which don't yield very well to begin with, but trying to figure out ways that um, we can grow with minimal inputs and I'm not doing the sort of conventional grain growing methods, which is all around Roundup and, and heavy tillage and, you know, wall-to-wall -wall planting and that kind of thing. It's already difficult enough to grow grains <laughs> traditionally, let's say, but now to try to do it without, well, it's, it's basically impossible without a tractor and um, mower and forklift I need because it's just me. And so the only way I can move things around is with the, help of a little forklift. So that's actually one of my most valuable tools. Um, just lets me move big bags of grain around or equipment or anything else, which I can't do by myself. That's kind of a loss. And yes, I, I mean, I can borrow from neighbors and, you know, the community here is incredibly generous. You know, I have no problem with that, except that weekends are when I'm at markets. That's when I actually earn my money. And that's the only time most of the equipment's available. You know, it's all working during the week. So it's a challenge for me to uh, even to borrow things to find a schedule that will work with them. I've been, my milling, the milling side of the business has always been really the primary side of the business. And it's been, after five years, I'm starting to get a lot of traction with, with I work with artists and bakers and chefs and um mainly in the Bay Area, but now starting in Southern California as well. And I've been milling nonstop to try to keep up with demands. My most precious resource is time. It's what I don't have right now. Um, even if I had the money to replace this equipment, which I don't. It's about $15,000 worth of, of gear that I lost. My tractor was 50 plus years old, but, you know, just an old battle axe. It worked. It still started and still worked, and it was quite fond of it just it's a it's an old john deere that's a kind of reckoned to be one of the best tractors john deere ever made and i said oh i miss my 4020 it's a good it was a good tractor for what i'm doing yeah i'll find another out there they're not not expensive but it's still you know it's still five thousand dollars to find an old old used tractor and a few thousand dollars for forklifts and start adding up all the a lot of little stuff that i lost um you know, I have portable shelters, sort of a garage out there for my equipment that I was just starting to put up with my nephew. And so that's why I'm scrambling to find ways to, to replace this. In fact, I'm in the middle of putting together a 
and a get out a GoFundMe campaign. I was hoping to do it last week while the thing was still fresh in people's minds, but um, I just didn't have time to do it. There are farmers with they're a lot more deserving than I am, and I have, I'll find a way to replace this equipment eventually. So what are the lessons learned for you in terms of fire and more generally climate change? Yeah, well, it's actually one reason I'm growing these grains, because they're very climate tolerant. They're, you can dry farm them. Wheat will grow without irrigation, particularly here in California. It used to be the primary crop here in Cape Bay Valley. I don't know if you noticed, but actually they were trying to go all the way to Clear Lake. They only got as far as Rumsey, but there was a railroad up and down the valley, and it was used partly to carry grain back down the valley because this was such a rich growing area for wheat and cereal grains. They're an, a very climate-tolerant crop, and we talk a lot now about the value of um, you know, what kind of the buzzwords regenerative agriculture, but it involves... Things like focused grazing and livestock management and understanding in a more holistic way what are the, the, what are the complete ecosystems that are involved with, with not just food production, but with, with environmental sustainability, the importance you know, that it's important to have animals. It is, it's, it's useful to have grazing out there, but it needs to be done in a way that understands how to control the basically either food or fuel, which other food for cows, but food for fire as well, and understanding how to manage that in a way that minimizes risks. You know, we've got 10,000 years of practice, developing agricultural practices that worked in a non-technology-driven society. And I think they probably worked because they were focused on small scale, there were local survivability and resilience. And they, because of the lack of inputs that make it much easier to drive yields and things, you can you know, just, just dump a bunch of chemical fertilizer on a field and, and you're going to get a big crop rather than taking the time to actually nurture the soil, understand water patterns, understand grazing patterns, have livestock on there, and do a more balanced system, which generally shows more resilience to climate change than what you call modern or conventional agriculture. I think that that's a really interesting lesson here to see. Why do you think this area is among the first fires of the season? But, you know, we're kind of at the, I think partly because we're at this interface between population centers and urban areas and and what will you do differently moving forward the first thing i think about is how you know how do you build a, a properly resilient structure you know, something off the ground something away from fuel what's your best advice to farmers who haven't been in the midst of fire but are under threat well, think about, you know, really take the time to stand back and look and look at your environment, look at your resources, think through the scenarios of, you know, what are you going to do when PG&E cuts your power? Because they will, and they may cut it well before the fire ever gets to you. So don't assume you're going to have water until the fire reaches your house like it did here. Think through that. Really do prepare, a, you know, an escape pack and you grab a bag of what do you what do you need if you're going to lose everything? What would you hold on to and make sure you can run with that? I've 
From a farmer's perspective, think about what you're planting around the periphery of your property. What are your irrigated crops and what are, what are you dry farming? And maybe you want to keep your irrigated crops around the periphery. Again, assuming the power is going to be cut, do you have generators? Can you run your wells or can you run your pumps and irrigate without PG&E's help? Do you have livestock and have a place to go with them and have a plan you know, for your livestock? It's not the time to think about it when the fire's on its way. You won't have time to deal with that. Yeah, it's serious. Not just fire. You know, flooding can cause equal damage and havoc and be as unpredictable. I don't even know what we do you know, for earthquakes around here, what that might entail, but that's definitely a possibility. This is good to talk about it. I wish, you know, if I if I had had the time, I would I'd be doing more about it. If I had the time and resources, if I had some help for this, I would definitely be sitting down and doing more about it. What's your most memorable story or anecdote from this experience? And then my community and my customers and everybody have been incredibly supportive and offers to help and concerned about about me and about the business and all that. So that's been that's been heartening as well to see. I guess I am making a difference to some folks or the business is making a difference to some folks. And well, that's all for today's episode of Stories from the Fields. Thank you for listening. And thank you to David Keisel for joining us today and for sharing your story. Join us again next week when we'll hear from more farmers and ranchers. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you haven't enrolled in our online course for farmers, Farmers Build Fire Resilience, stop by our website at farmercampus.com and claim your seat now.